it's gonna be a gonna be a long one, ladies and gentlemen. So Joe can hear me, but I can't hear him. Joe, I was um, so just look at your settings on what you're speaking through. I'd be on your right hand side. There's a little like button on the bottom. If you click on that, um, it should tell you how you're, you know, what what audio it's picking up. Don't worry, we got six hours of Craig, so we can wait as long as possible. Yo, can you... Hey, hey, there we are. Here we go. You got me? You got you loud and clear, buddy. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. You know, it's, uh, what, about 4 p.m. over here in uh, sunny California? That's um, about... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's the thing, man. So the, the way the podcast works is uh, it's called The End with Adam. Uh, and what that typically means and the way that I describe it to my guests is I try to find a place in people's lives where, you know, one thing may have ended and another part of their lives began. And for some people, it's, you know, really dramatic. Like I interviewed this girl who was MK Ultra and had to escape from a mental asylum and, um, you know, was running from her father who was trying to get adrenochrome from her. That's one example. But then there's also, you know, people who had to move from one state to another and that was a big deal for them. Uh, but you know, whatever you want to share in terms of like, you know, a, a time in your life where you're like, all right, I'm ending one phase and I'm beginning another. That's kind of where I like to start. And then after that, you know, we get lost in the weeds like we normally do. But, uh, anyways, um, let me actually properly introduce you. This is Joe and Joe, you got to remind me of your last name, buddy. Hyde, H-Y-D. Hyde. Okay. Okay. and Hyde. Yeah, like Jekyll and Hyde. I like that. All right, so Joe Hyde here, everybody. Joe, I met. When did we meet, Joe? Oh my God, we probably met circa two thousand and sixteen. Okay. Yeah, I would say that's about right. Yeah, and I met you at a mutual friend of ours's home, and uh, we just chatted it up. I, I I vaguely remember what we talked about, but it went from like a casual conversation to like a two hour long exchange of ideas it was great i was i was really happy to talk to you then but do you remember that yeah that's usually how it goes <laughs> yeah usually, yeah that means you have quality company that's a very that's a very good point that's a very good point but yeah so um i know right now you said you're in tampa but i met you in new orleans um and Correct. i do want to know actually technically yeah. in alabama i just got in okay I you're just in drove from tampa, alabama today that's right and what, what were you doing that for um, I was seeing family over Labor Day weekend down in Florida. Nice. So I went down there and uh, visited family, got to eat some good food, hang out, shoot the shit, that kind of thing. Sounds great, man. 
honestly, right now, that's probably the best thing most people should be doing. It's hanging out with family and shooting shit. So that's fucking great. Um, yeah, good. No complaints. <laughs> so you're you were in the Navy. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, I did all kinds of stuff. But yeah, yeah the Navy was a large chunk of my life. So if the theme is the end, um, certainly, I mean, you can go either way. You can go the end of my childhood years at 18 and going into the Navy, or you can do the end of the Navy going into, you know, the normal, normal world, as it were, proverbially. Right. I would say um, the biggest jump was from 18. Okay. That was the biggest jump. Okay. And for you, what, what made it the biggest jump? What was the kind of the context there? Well, I'm from a, I'm from a small town on the border of coal country in Pennsylvania. And, um, it's, it's nothing necessarily to write home about at 18. Now that I'm older, it looks nice for a place to settle down and build a family and do that thing. But at 18, it's like, you can go work at the fast food chain. You can go work at the grocery store. You can go work at the local factory, which I did for a day. And um, uh, then you then you wake up the next morning and you go, there's got to be more to life than this. And you right. put the gun back in the drawer and you go <laughs> figure out what that is. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I completely understand that. So for you... You were looking at a few options, not all of them exactly what you looked at as being a long-term solution to, you know, a life for yourself. And, uh, yeah, is that, does that sound about right? I mean, kind of. I, in, a, in a way, that's the case, but it wasn't any, it wasn't any wisdom-infused decision mm-hmm. per se. It was the fact that I just wanted to get out right, of right, right. where I was. In Pennsylvania and the most expedient way of doing that was to join the military so I joined the military and um, I, ch- I talked to all the branches you know I went down there and uh, the Air Force those guys were like playing golf and rubbing each other's shoulders and you know talking about how they were going to get off work at one o'clock in the afternoon and I thought I don't know if that's really you know, if I'm going to join the military, I want a real military experience. And so then I went over to the Marines and all they did was tell me what a pussy I was and how I wasn't going to be able to handle it. And, um, I was just, uh, okay. I was just a puddle of goo. Instead okay. of wood. And, um, and I was like, eh, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe I am. And what? so I didn't join the Marine Corps. And, um, Boy, what's that going on in the background, my man? Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about that. I got something out of package that I need to to get picked up like two hours ago and finally showed up. Sorry about that. But anyways. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I can edit it out. And then I went to to the Army, and the Army was like, uh, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we're in Afghanistan and Iraq, but don't worry, you you won't be going there. And I thought, really? I won't be going there? That's what you guys are going to tell me? You're the freaking army. You know? And they just lied through their teeth to get anyone to sign up. Wait a second. Wait a second. So hold. So 
they when you went to the recruitment office they were basically saying there's no way you're getting sent to like actual war or like yeah, the war. i mean they said eh, it could happen you know what I mean? could happen okay but okay the army that's what the army is who was primarily driving operations in both those countries at the time you know the marines led stuff going into iraq and in 03 but um beyond that it's always been always been army driven and uh they were like eh, the chances are slim to none so i thought well that's bullshit i'm not going to trust you <laughs> yeah yeah so so when you're talking to them and they're saying like yeah you're definitely not going to get sent over there you already knew kind of like that was definitely not going to be the case you probably were going to get sent over there for you, what were you looking for in the armed services? Like, aside from, you know, a way out of your life, like, what would have been an acceptable kind of recruitment thing that, you know, that they uh, said to you? I was looking for something to challenge me. I was looking okay. for something to make me into a man. Okay. Not, not a comfortable child. Right. Uh, right. Around their hometown you know, occasionally sucking on the teat of whatever happens, whoever happens to be charitable and offering you a job or putting you up for the night or things like that. And I could have worked a nine to five at a factory, which I tried and I hated it. I worked, uh, the only job, the only real job I had out of high school was an 07. I made 15 bucks an hour. That's um, good for 07. Yeah. 07. It was 12 hour shifts. And I spent 12 hours on an assembly line covered in plastic, putting ricotta cheese into cheese shells with Whoa. a bunch of ladies. And then they were flash freezing them. And I did that for 12 hours, and the smell of cheese made me sick afterwards. Wow. And I, had to, I couldn't come back. And I thought, if that's all life has to offer, 40 years of this, before I get to die old, you know, it's like, fuck off. I'm not doing that. So what did you ultimately find on the other end of, of your decision? Like when you said that's not going to work for me and you went to the armed services, you went into the Navy, correct? Or, or which one did you? Yeah, I did. Okay. I did. So last, the last, uh, the last duty station, or not the last duty station, the last um, recruiter I went to was in Navy. And there was a guy there. I'll never forget his name. His name was Orlando. Cruz. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this guy was a Latino out of uh, San Diego or something. But he was like, honestly, I said, what's the Navy like? Tell me about it. He was just sitting in his chair doing paperwork, not trying to impress you, not trying to scream at you, not taking it easy like he's on holiday, like the Air Force. Um, I said, what's it about? And he goes, well, it's, you know, it depends what you end up doing. Honestly, I can't tell you, but. I said, okay, well, what can you tell me? He goes, well, I can tell you this. I'll never forget it. He goes, you're going to have some of the best days of your life, guaranteed. And then he goes, but you're also going to have the worst days of your life, guaranteed. And I thought, that's an honest answer. That's an answer I can respect. And uh, at 18, I'm like, I ain't got no plans. I ain't got no money for college, you know. That's right. what everybody else is doing. Neither of my parents went to college. I take that back. They went. They never graduated. My mom right. was like a semester, I think. But um, neither of them really knew anything about it. You know what I mean? And I didn't have the money to go, and I didn't want to take a loan to go because I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
So I thought, why not have somebody pay me until I figure out what to do instead of me paying them when I don't know what I want. Right. So I joined up, and uh, I'll never forget it. I was I was called Love Sailor because I left on Valentine's Day, two thousand eight. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so the beginning of that, like, just kind of walk me through. You enlist, right? At some point, you have to sign a document saying you'll show up at some place at some date. But then, what happens after that? Well, then everybody, nobody likes you anymore. So they're no <laughs> to you and sweet to you. Yeah. Until you get there, and then they're yelling at you like you're an asshole. And I had not been accustomed to being yelled at, except on rare occasion when I misbehaved. And even then, you know, it was tempered for most of my teenage years. You know, because I, I learned to behave by being disciplined. But um, this yelling at me constantly at the top of your lungs was new to me and scared the shit out of me, if I'm being honest. I was like, what the fuck? How am I supposed to communicate with anybody that's yelling at me constantly? It's like getting a blowhorn in your ear every time you're not expecting it. So what were they yelling at you about? Like, what was off the rip that something that they could even yell at you about? Yeah, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Sit down with these other people. But they're screaming at you. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Like, or they're like, where's your, pap- where's your fucking paperwork? Show me your paperwork. But they're not asking you, like, hey, guys, where's your paperwork? Yeah. At you. And, you know, for, you're sort of unaccustomed to that. So it's like a, it's like a shock tactic when you first get there. Yeah. And, um, what was it? Um uh, I got on the bus. They're all yelling. Then you get out, and you're all lined up, and everybody has their iPhones and shit, right? That their their little lunches that mommy and daddy pack <laughs> before they sent them on their way. Right. And they take all that shit and they throw it in the garbage, unless mm. it's your tech. Right? Yeah. Your right. Stuff. And then they make you put it in a box, like. Well, you broke up there a little bit. What was that last part? Hey, hey, I lost you there. You copy? Yeah, copy that. All right. Um, no, everybody's calling me now that I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> so uh, they take all your shit, they put it in a box, and then they shave your head, and they issue you your boot camp stuff, right? And uh, your your uniform stuff. So okay. get all that. And they're taking you through rooms and like, you know, uh, checking your teeth and checking your eyes and giving you clothes. And then there's this thing called the moment of truth, right? Where they sit everybody in a room and the biggest, scariest guy there is screaming about how if anybody lied on their application about, you know, convictions and things like that. Yeah. Things they've done and they go beyond this point. They're looking at, you know, 10 years in the federal penitentiary, if anybody finds out. So they try and scare people that are trying to sneak off to avoid, you know, convictions. Right. And so you have, you have that. And I had this thing where I was like, I could just tell them I did heroin. Fuck it. Yeah. Right. Big heroin addict and get out of here right now. Yeah, but so that I, was going through your mind. That was that was an option. You were like, I might just bail right now. Yeah, why not? 
That's what I thought in the moment. And then I thought about it a little more. And I thought, eh, fuck it. What am I going to do? Go back and be ashamed to my family? I can't do that. So I didn't. I kept my mouth shut. And I kept trucking. And then, you know, that eight weeks of boot camp. And uh, you come out a sailor. And that was... Tell me about boot camp, man. You you you, uh, you kind of skipped that one over there. Well, yeah, they. I mean, they have these these sort of um, bays. They put you in with these bunk beds, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's head shaved. Everybody's wearing the same T-shirt and shorts. Blah blah blah. And they basically run you and beat you. Um, not beat like hit you, but beat mm-hmm. like pt you, probably five times a day vigorously and then when you're not doing that you're always ironing your uniforms or shining your boots or whatever see this is the thing i wanted to ask about because i only know this from watching movies but there seems to be in the military um this uh sort of emphasis on making sure that all of your personal belongings are like very like almost obsessive compulsively like counted made sure that they're put in a specific place you know yeah um uh, you have to like crease things a certain way. What What do you think? I mean, aside from the uniformity of it, right? What is the point of that? That seems a little bit kind of well, over the top. Yeah, it's attention to detail. It's like, uh, okay, so if you're making sure, I mean, here's the theory and practice. If you can make sure you have uh, quarter inch creases on your sheets when you're making your bed, you know what I mean, and you're right. Your wool blanket is folded back a half inch and your shoes are shined and laced properly within, you know, five millimeters uh, distance on the laces, right? The lineup of the laces. Uh, The idea is if you can do that, then you can be trusted to, you know, pay attention to a watch detail. I see. I see. It makes perfect sense. You can be be taught anything. Right. Right. Now that doesn't mean you you'll necessarily pass your C school but or your A school, right? But um What what are those? Tell me just a little bit about about those. Okay, so once you're done with boot camp, you go to what's called an A school and a C school. So in the Navy you're given a rate. You're given a rate you're gonna be a cook or you're gonna be uh uh Navy SEAL or something like that. Right. And your A school is your introductory school to that profession. So that is like uh, it's like taking general studies courses. I see. At at your liberal arts college. Right. And then your C school is like specializing in your major. Right. So Mm -hmm. the A school would be for me was intelligence. And then the uh, C school was operations intelligence. Right. And then there were other schools like imagery or signals or things like that. And when you went into intelligence in the Navy, um, what were what were the sort of things they were emphasizing, like in the beginning that they felt that you would have a proclivity to? Right. Because from what I understand, do you get a choice as to what school you get put into or does it, it sort of kind of boils down to where they feel you should go? Well, it depends on your grades in the A school. Okay. And it depends on, um, you know, honestly, I forget. I just remember it depended on grades in the A school and it depended on something else. 
like maybe the 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 boss's um perception of you right okay whatever chief or or is1 they would be called like staff sergeant master sergeant that kind of thing in the army but whatever they thought you were capable of is kind of where you got funneled Um, okay and then you could make a request so if you were top of your class you usually got into the c school you wanted to get into and right, then, you could choose at that point. Like, I, hey, I, I'm interested in this, and I've proven, based on my grades, that I that I'm at my aptitude is for any like for anything I would want to do. So they kind of take you on that. They're like, okay, right. And so you get you get whatever C school you get, whether you get the one you want or you don't. You go and you do it, and um, you you march around. You march to school. You march back. You know, you got to still do PT every day. And uh, I spent I spent several months there doing that, and then in C school, however well you do in C school, you get to pick orders. So I remember for myself, I got in the top three. I may have been second or third. I don't believe I was first, but I was top three in my class, and the top three got to pick their orders. Right. Right. And so I chose Japan. Okay. So and was where I went for my first tour of duty. Wow. Okay. And so when you went to Japan, or actually before that, when you were able to pick your orders, what, what was on the list? Like what places were you? Oh, my God, all over the world. All, all over the world. Of, yeah, all kinds of places in the U.S. Africa was a place. Uh, there was Djibouti. Um. There's all kinds of stuff, man. I can't even remember, honestly. But I remember I was very interested in Asia at the time. Because, you know, you grow up 18 in some small, dumpy town in central Pennsylvania. You get to watch the Travel Channel and see Shibuya Station. Right. I see, like, samurai documentaries and things like that. And I got into that. I was like, oh, I want to see that culture in person. So I picked Japan. And I was so I was sent to a ship called the USS Essex. Okay. Um, the Essex was a helicopter carrier, and at the time it was stationed out of Sasebo, Japan. So tell me about your, your landing in Japan, or no? Tell me about the carrier, first of all, because you spent quite some time on there before you got to Japan, from what I can understand, right? On the Essex? Yeah. So the Essex was home-ported in Japan. So the way it worked is we would go go out. Um, we would go out for three months at a time and then be in port for a month. So we'd so you go out on the seas. Yeah, we'd be on the ocean three months at a time. So for three months, you're living on a ship. And even when we were in port, I lived on a ship because I was so low a rank. I couldn't, I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out of the uh, ship to get my own place in country. So I would have to leave the boat every night if I wanted to go out and then head off base and then come back on base and back onto the boat before midnight or something like that or 2 a.m. Um, like a weekend or stuff like that and 
life oh. on the boat. Oh, sorry. What were you saying? No, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say life on the boat in, in, in your first couple of months. I mean, tell me about what that acclimation was like going from, you know, I'm assuming you live most of your life on land, right? In, in central Pennsylvania. And you then are now on a boat for a long period of time. And I'm assuming these boats are, for the most part, fitted to be, you know, a place where people live for a long time or at least are having to, you know, subsist for a long time. So I can't imagine it was too uncomfortable. But, I mean, tell me about, like, just the day-to-day, like, routines of living on a boat. Um, well, it was, it was very difficult. It was very exhausting, very stressful. It's like going to prison is how I would describe it, except you're getting paid to be there. I mean, you get there, everything you own fits into like a, like a locker the size of your high school locker. Wow. And that's, and that's underneath a bed, right? Like your bed kind of lifts up, your rack lifts up, and there's just enough space for that, and then you can have one bag, maybe two bags, that you throw in like a, a supply hold which is usually on the outskirts of birthing. Birthing is where everybody sleeps in your department. And so they have beds in there, but where the beds um, run up against the edge of the ship, it's angled, and everybody puts their extra bags of stuff Mm. there. I see. And so what you have is everything in your locker you need every day like shit paper and toothpaste and your uniforms and your shower stuff, shaving stuff. And then everything else you don't need is in that bag on the, on the outside of where the racks are. And uh, you go from living in a, living in a, 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 a normal house to essentially living in a closet, like a storage closet, except it's laid horizontally instead of vertically. And for you, I mean, how did you get yourself into that world? How did you find comfort if you did? I mean, did you? I mean, yeah, I got used to it. I mean, I think of the Count of Monte Cristo when I think about it now. And <laughs> first goes to prison, he goes to these stages of, he, like, he, he, ref, he at first he's mad and, like, indignant, and then he goes through... Um, He's sad, and then he goes crazy, and then he gets apathetic. It's the same thing. And, um, right. you know, I lived on that boat for three years. For three years, I lived there. And uh, I sailed all over Asia. Um, got to visit Australia. You know, not only Japan, but Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, Cambodia, the Philippines. Uh, I got to visit lots of places in between, but you know, the work, the work was interesting at times and terribly boring at times. And give me a typical, like, uh, you know, mission or or job you were slated to do, you know, during that three year period. Um, well, you would have a watch, right? So your watch would be 12 on 12 off. So for seven days a week, with exception to the four months out of the year you're in port, you're doing 12 on, 12 off, minimum 12 on. A lot of the times it ends up being like 16 on, 8 off, is how I would describe it. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, you have your intelligence duties, which is, you know, manning watches, doing research, that kind of thing. And then you have your sailor duties, which are uh, jobs like, um, like, being on, like being a shipboard firefighter, right? And right. you have to train to fight fires if they break out on board. Or you have to do 3M, which is like the maintenance guy for the area your physical space is located in. So then you would go through, make sure all the drains work, make sure the lights work, make sure all the gauges and everything, if there are any gauges or valves on the walls of the ship, right, on the bulkhead, you make sure those work. And then, um, you know, sometimes uh, you got to do double duties. Like, I would also have to brief every day. I was a briefer, so I would show up earlier than everybody else, and I would work through um, the briefing that the Commodore would look at or the captain of the ship would look at for what was going on for the day, right? Things like that. So you don't have just one job. You're not just shining a knob every day, all day. Right. Even yeah. though some days that does happen. Yeah. But that's not most days. So you got a full schedule, basically. You're, you're working the whole day doing something that is, you know, either in maintenance to or dealing with the ship. And on top of that, you're also doing, like you said, your intelligence duties. And I'm curious, you said you were doing research. What, what would that be like? Well, you have, you know, you have... Um... You basically have a mission, right? I, I can't discuss it too much because of methods and procedures and things like that. But Of course. No, I understand. You, you have a mission, and your mission involves the AOR of Asia, and you have certain people in Asia that um, you're monitoring or tracking, not only to um, preserve and protect the United States, but to also enforce UN law of the sea. So I don't know if you know this, but the United States is responsible for uh, enforcement with respect to United Nations law of the sea. Because you think about it, there are no police in international waters. Um, it's just an amalgamation of countries at the UN who have decided to create international law. And we, of course, are the enforcers of that. So that involves things like drug smuggling, human trafficking, right? Wrestling, stuff like that. So there's a whole host of um, issues, both geopolitical and um, even humanitarian aid related or tactical in the sense of uh, arms trafficking, stuff like that. We would often do aid missions after there was a typhoon, they would put a bunch of food and water on board our ship. We would drive the ship up to, say, the coast of the Philippines, and then we would fly helicopters inland and drop off food and water to people. That was wow. another aspect of our, okay. of our job. And um, in my downtime, I liked to read. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. Like, with your R&R, &R, you seemed like 
even from when I spoke to you back in New Orleans, like a very well-read, well-researched guy. And it was surprising to me. I had known, I think you told me that you didn't uh, formally like go to college, that you went to the Navy first. Um, and then you, I think you later on did go to, to universities, right? I think that's, that was when we were talking, you were at Loyola. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 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 And I, well, when I joined the Navy, I wasn't very bright in particular. My grades, as I recall, were, was probably B average, maybe. And, um, I struggled with reading and writing in particular. And, uh, I just never really tried during high school, um, with certain things, the important things. So reading, writing, and math, right? Right, right, right. Neglected. But the things I didn't neglect were gym class and study halls and history class, you know, the easy stuff, I would say. I see. And you were kind of a history buff when I met you um, back in New Orleans. I want to know, did that start when you were in the Navy? That was, was that the kind of the first kinds of literature you were reading? Yeah, I would say so. Um, what got you into that? I, I went to the, they had a base library at the time. And uh, I went to the base library and I thought, I don't, you know, you're sort of watching politics and then all of a sudden you get a security clearance, right? And you sort of see the reality of some of the news stories you're watching. And uh, right, right. You realize you realize how ignorant you are of the way the world works at 18. Right. So I, I thought I, at the time I wanted to make myself as good of as good an intelligence professional as possible. And so I thought I need to read more about geopolitics and decision making and things like that. And I explicitly remember um, going to the library and looking for something on Vietnam because I had heard somebody referencing how Afghanistan was like Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, is it like Vietnam? Do I need to look this up? Let me look. And so I went to the library and I ended up reading the first, I would say, real book I read that wasn't some kid's book or some fiction book. Right. It was, it was called No More Vietnams by Richard Nixon. And so I read that, and he sort of makes the case in that for why he pursued the policies he did in Vietnam. And then you get a sort of depth and scope with respect to, with respect to the significance of, of politics on the international stage. And you get perspective on the past, which also helps you understand the present, right? Right. So, all these things. And, for, and once I did that, I started reading prolifically. I probably read 150 books on that ship in a period of two years, two and a half years, probably closer to 200 books. And um, I didn't understand every book I read. In fact, some of them I would have to sit there with a dictionary and I would have to look up words I didn't know. And slowly it just came to me. You know what I mean? You got better. Yeah. You expanded yeah. your vocabulary. All that. Totally. Totally. No, I can understand that for sure. Um, so in that time, I mean, that's a lot of stuff to get through. That's pretty much, I would say, three or four times what a four-year undergrad college student would read during their you know, 
uh, time in, in undergraduate, you know, uh, education. So you kind of gave yourself a pretty thorough education on what I would assume was very pertinent to what you were doing. So I guess at that point, it's fair to say that you kind of had a pretty solid idea of what was going on around you, at least in a worldview sense, uh, government policies, uh, the way, in, you know, countries interact with each other, both historically and in the present. And I guess my question now is, um, what conclusion did you come to at the end of all that really extensive education? Um, well, it was a journey, you know, um, when you're young, here's the worst thing you can be is intelligent, right? But not, um, not wise or not have respect for authority. And that was exactly my problem at that time. So what I ended up understanding, the more I read was, uh, I was understanding that I may be more knowledgeable than, uh, than things, or excuse me, more knowledgeable on things than others around me. And um, that led me to behave in a very, uh, in a very, I would say, petty way sometimes. Because it, it, I had all this knowledge, but I didn't have the wisdom of how to appropriately apply it. And uh, that came with age and more experience. But in that time, you know, at, the, at that time, I thought um, everybody's doing everything wrong all the time. And only I know the right way to get shit done. And what's everybody's problem? These people are all idiots. You know, and, and uh, I thought that a lot. Yeah. And it made me worse than I could have been at my yeah. job. Because there were people that knew more than me. They just had a difference of opinion. And there were people that knew less than me. And instead of trying to build them up, I tore them down. Right? Right. And a, and a part of that was living on the ship stressed me out. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah. So when, when were you uh, finally discharged? Was it the, at the end of that three years? No, so um, I was on there for three years. I had a lot of, you know, I learned a lot, but I also had a lot of drama. I was, oh, yeah? I was not a stranger to conflict, let me put it like that. And there was one big, tall, goofy-looking fu fucker in particular <laughs> that uh, gave me a hard time and who I had a serious problem with, and he was terrible at his job. He was absolutely terrible at his job. And I knew it then, and, and it was probably the only correct call I made in judging a person during that time. But uh, he caused a lot of stress and grief. And so by the time I left the ship, I didn't want to go beyond um, my first enlistment. But my first enlistment was for six years. And wow. so um, I had to go to a second command. And before I went to the second command, I had to extend a year because it's a three-year commitment, and I spent a year training. So I spent a year training, and then I spent three on the ship. So that's four years in, but I had only two years left in my contract. Well, to get the job I wanted, I had to extend another year, so I had to go to seven. So I wow. went to I extended a year, and that took me to Washington, D.C., where I was an intelligence analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. DIA. 
Yep. That's yeah. Cool. That's uh, that's a very nice job. So then, uh, you know, at that point, at least from my background, coming from Maryland and that community and just that world of people that really, really want to work for the government, that's a pretty great job. I would say for a lot of people that I knew and grew up with who did also enlist at, at some level, um, that would be, you know, pretty great, at least on paper, it, just, it would sound like. So I'm curious, like, you know, what was DC like for you and what did you get out of it? Well, it was a significant improvement compared to the ship. I will say that. And um, I had a little, I don't know, I had this weird thing when I first left the ship because I lived there so long, I got an apartment and I kept my bed and everything I owned in one room in my apartment. The apartment seemed way too big. And uh, it took me like, I'm going to say two or three months before I sort of actually dressed up my apartment, right? Right, right. To be able to, to, be able to function properly. And uh, so I got, <laughs> I, got, I got read in. I got my job. My initial job was um, basically uh, testing um, proprietary Department of Defense software. So okay. I would just sit down and they would ask me to get on a program and follow the instructions and, you know, tell them, take notes on what worked and what didn't work. And that was my job for about a year. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the thing about DIA is it was a great job for people that just want a big fat check and very minimum work. Right. Yeah. I would say 70% of the people there did next to nothing. It was, that place was a monument to waste, fraud, and abuse. Wow. Um, it had to, it had everything to do with the way it was funded. So the way it was funded was you get an allotment every year, right? Right. DIA gets so much money from Congress, and every department within the DIA gets so much money. It's all based on the previous year. And if you don't spend the money, you don't get more money next year, you get less. Yeah. yeah. So what you had was entire departments um, that only, let's say, spent $70 million to do their normal functions, they mm. had to spend another $30 million. Mm. So they would hire people to just do bullshit that they didn't really need. But they pitched it as, like, we need it so they could meet their spending quotas. And then you had people like government workers that were responsible for, you know, maintaining certain programs, not necessarily creating anything. So yeah. as long as it worked, they just hung out. And all right. they was do all they did literally was answer maybe the occasional customer service call or look at YouTube and Facebook for eight hours a day if they even worked eight hours a day. And and you coming from central Pennsylvania and I'm assuming was you know you said it was a small town working class town. Does that sound like a good you know kind of description of what where you came from? kind of, you know, just a regular American town kind well, of place, factory. Yeah, mm. I mean, in, in some respects, but you got to understand, these people are driving Mercedes-Benz. And, right. And this. They're not driving a dumpy Ford. Right. Sitting behind a, you know, they're not sitting behind a kiosk rolling their eyes at you, telling, <laughs> telling you to, 
that their product isn't in stock anymore and to fuck off. They're not doing those kind of jobs. They're doing jobs supposedly critical national security. Yeah. And- well, oh no. Well, I was saying um, to to compare where you came from to now you're in this wealthy kind of bubble of government oh, totally, spending. Yeah. It's a totally different animal. Right. When you see this stuff exists, you're like, what? Right. That's more what I wanted to know is like when you yeah. realized just how big and bloated our government was and how much people in that system are just completely ingratiated into it and, you know, totally willing to, to do, like you said, nothing jobs for, you know, quite substantial money. I mean, made every one of them made six figures at least. Right. Right. So at that point, I mean, what, what stopped you from wanting to go face first into that world? Cause that would be, I mean, for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people listening, they're like, Hey, that doesn't sound like a bad life. What stopped you? I like struggle. I think struggle is critical to developing who we are as individuals. I think every person is born with the potential to be this very special person. And only through struggle and hardship can we, can we be who we were born to be. I've had that view for a while. And um, I had it at the time. And I thought, I could do this. But it would be easy. I would make a bunch of money and I would be miserable because I'm not being, I'm not struggling in the way I want to struggle. And before every, anybody, you know, burns me at the stake, I recognize that too much struggle is a bad thing. But I also believe that too little struggle is also a bad thing. And you have to find a healthy balance. And in my opinion, agency work was way too little struggle at my age. Maybe that would be something I'd be interested in now or five years from now in mm. my 30s. But mm. then it was like, you, you, you literally just slide right in because they already invest in the clearance. You slide right, right you get the gig, and then you hang out for 20 years. Right, right. You know? 30 years and then you can retire. You re- you can retire after 30 years of federal service, I believe mm-hmm. is the way it goes. And you make 80%. Well, yeah. 80% of, of, you know, $200,000 in 30 years is obnoxious. And yeah. then they're paying those salaries for people who are 50 and who have to live till they're 90. Yep. And then, um, they also can have other jobs. They're not just cut out. You know, they can have other jobs. They can then go on to be contractors. So then they make their 80% plus a contractor's pay. And then they're doubling up. Some of them make half, they, some of them clear half a million. I'm sure. No problem. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Between their contract position. Yeah, once you're once you're in that loop and then you've got good contacts and you can continue to work for consultancies or you can even make your own, um, you know, uh, what's it called, uh, government contracting group. A lot of those guys do that. They just invest in themselves, create whatever it is, IT security, just cash checks, man. I mean, that's that's the whole DC Beltway yeah, kind of show. Know somebody, 
yeah. you're in. All you got to oh, yeah. do is, is make the paperwork look good. And if you know somebody, you have a contract. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, man. Propo- that's why proposal writing is such big business. That was something when I graduated college I was super interested in looking into. But it, it really is like a true commitment to your entire life. Like it isn't something you can kind of dip in and dip out of. You know, you really are in that world forever. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so lucrative, you know. And people, really just, people just get easily sucked in because the money's obnoxious. And it's like, I don't have to worry about money anymore. All I have to do is do this eight hours a day. But to yeah. me, it's, I'd rather worry about money because <laughs> I don't get anything. I don't get anything out of it from my brain or my heart. You know? So, so, so at this point, you know, you've you've decided that you want some more. You you want something that's going to kind of give you more value and wisdom. Excuse me, yeah. in your in your own self. So you're leaving DC. Where do you go? I spent a year there and then I volunteered to go to Afghanistan to do a tour in Afghanistan for six months. Wow. So you did a naval. So the Navy, what do they do in Afghanistan? Well, the Navy supports the army and the Marine Corps in Afghanistan for various um, missions. I was, I, I was basically, my story's kind of unique, right? I don't think it happens very much, but I didn't deploy like with a unit or anything. I went, on what's called an individual augmentee billet. And um, I had to volunteer to do it. And they didn't even want to let me go. They wanted me to stay there and keep clicking through software. And I said, guys, I'm going to fucking Harakiri. <laughs> if you make me keep clicking through software for another year. And finally, they let me go. But it was actually really hard to volunteer because nobody wanted me to leave. And there was this bullshit like, Oh, it would look bad on us that we were giving up our guy. You know what I mean? As oh. if we were using you. Yeah, yeah. There's all, so there's all kinds of dumb shit like that. So what is that? Why? Why do they? Once you're in the bubble, why don't they want you out? Well, it, you know, at least in the military, perception is reality. So if you have a guy leaving, the perception is you don't need that guy. You've got and you let him go, well, then you don't need that billet. You don't need that slot. Just like if you don't spend your money, you don't get more money. Right? Exactly. But, Everybody has to pretend that they're essential in order for this. Yeah. That's it. That's exactly what it is. And so they, it was actually really hard to get to deploy, but I finally did the paperwork and went to all the training schools and stuff, and they even sent me to Army school in the morning. Um, uh, and after army school, which was in Fort Jackson, they sent me to, uh, Afghanistan and that was it. So they call it it army school. It was really like a, it was like a baby's introductory lesson to being an infantry guy. And so I went down there, shot some guns, hung out in body armor for a couple of weeks and (laughs) was that. And then they sent me over. So you go to Afghanistan. Now, at any point, were you like, I just made the biggest fucking mistake in my goddamn life? There's one one moment where I flew from Bagram to Kandahar. 
and mm-hmm. I was supposed to fly from Bagram to Mazari Sharif. Mm-hmm. And Kandahar was where all the action was and still is. It's where all the shit goes down. And so yeah. I was like, man, I hope my plane doesn't get fucking shot down while I'm accidentally going to Kandahar. And then when I was in Kandahar, then the plane then went up to where I was supposed to be, which was in the north, which was super laid back because it wasn't controlled by the dominant um, the dominant ethnicity that the Taliban is uh, uh, filled with, which is Pashtun. Yeah, it's filled with ethnic minorities like Tajiks, Turkmen, um, Uzbeks in the north. So there's more... There's, there tends to be less um, gunfire in the north. Now, that's not to say it didn't happen or that it didn't increase. But when I was there, it was, I would say, mostly peaceful up there. Okay. And so you go to Afghanistan, and I've heard a few different takes on Afghanistan because I've talked to a few, a few people that had a few different, you know, wildly different experiences. but. When you go somewhere, I guess that's not as much of a hot zone. What does that like? What does that day to day look like when you're not really? I guess you're not, you know, immediately worried that you're going to get shot at. What do you do instead? I wake up and I go to my office and I look at my emails. That's what I do. The same thing I do in Washington D.C., except I did it on a base in the desert in Afghanistan, and occasionally I would go out. And uh, I would do some in-person work, which involved me having discussions with people. And um, it also involved me being part of various other um, field exercises, I will say, for the sake of gathering information or collecting um, materials, things like that. But right. uh, the, the general gist was... I was a liaison envoy for the NATO special forces in the North. And so um, I would go to an office, the German special forces guys would be there, the Swedish special forces guys and the Americans. And then I would make sure they had everything they needed from uh, the, the actual regional command or the guy in okay. by a region. If that yes. Means. So they would come to you for like regional command, like reports or things that they needed to know that were going on, like from the actual main base. Yeah. I understand. Um, okay. And sometimes they wouldn't come to me. They would just go somewhere else. Right. It all depends on what they needed. But um, right. in that office and I was with those three groups and, and the whole issue with the deployment itself was I filled a billet that was for an 04, which was an officer level four. And um, I was an E4, which was an enlisted level four, which is like the lowest rank you can be, right? But right. It was, it was supposed to be a senior officer getting off the plane. And they got a lowly enlisted because somebody screwed up the paperwork. And so <laughs> much of my time was spent um, in civilian clothes, right? Because they couldn't, wow. send, they couldn't send an E4 into a room with a bunch of generals. Nobody right. was but if they sent a civilian into a room with a bunch of generals, then people would be like, oh, okay, well, what are they doing? Okay, that's fine, blah, blah, blah. 
Wow, that's interesting. So if you're wearing civilian clothes, it's almost like a psychological thing of like, okay, we can we can hear what he has to say. He's not he's not yeah. a, a grunt. Okay. And the okay. and the colonel in charge of me at the time allowed that. Right. Wow. And then he also let me get on like book my own Black Hawk helicopters and do a little traveling around. Wow. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about that. Well, I just I got I got I, wa- I didn't feel I was very useful on the main base. So I thought, I'm going to go to some of these other bases and see what's up. And I ended up going to some place in a place called Sherbergan. And I can't even remember the name of the place anymore. But I spent about a month or two out there of my six-month tour. And um, I supported the, the Green Beret team out there. Wow. And I went out with them to do information collection stuff or training stuff, or things like that. And uh, I did that, and I hung out on that base. And the best part about that base, keep in mind, we're out in the sticks in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, they flew in. It was it was Sodexo, I think. Yeah. The food company. Yeah, Sodexo, I, I, like in colleges, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sodexo was the contractor for the food out there. And so things would be airdropped in, or like uh uh driven out to the to the to them or whatever right well the guy in charge was this uh chef from Denmark that owned two restaurants one in Denmark one in Thailand and wow. he just decided to come out and do this cuz he was bored right? wow so they hired him to be the base chef and uh he was a big tall dane kind yeah. of kind of weird but um a good guy, uh, uh, aside from his his unique uh, mannerisms, but he would have he had a lockdown on like cigars and booze and all this other stuff. Oh, that's awesome! So, yeah, and I remember we had these two good-looking Swedish nurses on the base too. Nice. And he, and he was whining and dining them in the gazebo every night. <laughs> that's trying, fucking great. Trying to marry him, I'm pretty yeah. sure. That's awesome. So, so you met you met some 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 characters out there, is what it sounds like. There were some people. Dude, the Navy and the and the Army were full of characters, full time characters. <laughs> and and I mean, ultimately, like during this whole experience, because you do kind of, from what I understand, you do kind of make the best of a situation that could have otherwise ended, you know, fairly okay or you know, whatever kind of blase. There are a lot of people that just kind of get put into the military and they come out and they don't really know what they want to do. You really seem very proactive about it. So I want to know, like, ultimately, uh, what do you, what do you want now, now that you're out of the military? Um, I want to make, I want to, I want to, I mean, there's a lot of things I want to do. I guess my number one thing would be start a revolution. That would be yeah. my number one. And sure. then, other than that, finish this master's program on them. Yeah. Uh and uh maybe uh have my wife harass me less or my future wife <laughs> harass me less and fucking get on it like I tell her to get on it. And if I get if I can if I can do that, if I can do those three things or even one of those three things, I'll be pleasantly um surprised. <laughs> so it sounds like uh your thirties are kind of what they should be. You know, you're, you're looking towards 
a sort of a lot more of a stable future than I can say a lot of people who didn't make the sacrifices you made in your 20s, you know, don't really have. You know, you, you seem to have really understood, okay, like you said earlier, I do need yeah, to struggle was, now. Huh? Yeah, I mean, you're kind of right. But also, like, it wasn't a sacrifice. Everybody goes, oh, but thank you for your sacrifice. This thing, the other. <laughs> when the fucking right. guy gets killed or the guy loses his legs, then it's a sacrifice. Right. When it when that doesn't happen, you do your job. I did my job. I didn't have to make any sacrifices. Frankly, thank God I didn't. The only right. thing I sacrificed was my time, and to me, that wasn't a sacrifice. I was having an adventure. I was getting yeah. out of it. The guys that that got killed, or the guys that lost their legs, or you know, the 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 families that uh, have have children with no father or mother. Those are the people that made sacrifices. So I get all bent out of shape when people go, thank you for your sacrifice. I just go, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I remember you saying that actually a few years ago. I should have remembered that. That was your, that was your take on it. But yeah, man, I mean, uh, nonetheless, you know, there is a level of discipline that I think that I, I think people listening to this can really take from that. You know, it does require some level of, I, you know, I don't want to say, because we just said sacrifice is not the right word, but it does take a certain level of discomfort, being comfortable, being discom- being uncomfortable to be able oh, to, yeah. to be able to really evolve as a person and realize, you know, what you want uh, that will make you, you know, not just comfortable, but better as a person, you know, because you have to get better as a person to become more comfortable. So those two things kind of start to become, you know, uh, Sem- 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 symbiotic, you know, in a certain way, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something. Um, you have to, you have to be, you, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, first of all, which is a rare feat. But also, um, you know, to really find out who you are, you have to try different things. Yeah. And, I tried, I tried working at a grocery store. I tried working at a restaurant. I tried working at a factory. I tried not working at all and just being a leech at 17 in my parents' home because I was not yet a legal adult, even though I had graduated high school at 17. And uh, none of that shit did anything for me. And so what I do, I went down, I joined the Navy. And... The Navy did some stuff for me, but by the end, it wasn't doing stuff for me. So I didn't re-up. So then I went to college, and I tried, you know, that. And uh, at first, I started in business. Then I went to physics. Then I went to econ. And the way I would do it is I would just take mostly general studies and maybe one specialty class. And then when I realized I didn't like it, I tried something else. And, you know... Um, the one thing to take away is quitting can be a good thing, right? If you're doing something and you don't like it, but it's a legitimate don't like, not like, a, not like, a, uh, you know, not something you're going to have to do everywhere, like show up on time. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, but something like, Hey, you know what? I don't mind these people in the, in the, in the uh, kitchen, in this restaurant. But honestly, grilling burgers is not for me. 
not my cup of tea. Then you quit and you try something else. And the biggest problem we have today is that there's a certain class of people that get to try whatever they want because they have money and we have a, a system of legal structures that require you to have money to try everything you want to try. Yeah, right, and, right. And so you have a certain class of people that can try whatever they want. And then you have the rest of us, which we got to join the military or we got to work a minimum wage job and hope a manager position opens up or hope somebody else is hiring at some place we actually want to be at because it costs us $40,000 just to break ground and open something like a coffee shop. Right. You know what I mean? And right. then, you got, then you have to charge a dollar fifty a cup of coffee every day. And then right. you pay $5,000 a year in property taxes. And it's, mm. and, and this is what really fires me up when I think about it. I'm grateful for all the opportunities I've had. But what makes me mad is that we live in a society now where opportunities aren't widely available, available because you have to buy into them. And yes. Yeah. The reason you have to buy into them is because the previous generation priced other people out of the market deliberately to in, insulate themselves, right? And keep mm. their own rewards up. Mm. And the cost was future generations opportunity and ability to create their own thing and succeed at their own thing. And so this is what gets me fired up when we talk about, you know, plans for the future, things like that. I, I hear you loud and clear, man. And I think um, a lot of people who are finding themselves in a situation where they may have a nice business idea or they may just not even have something that they think even is a business idea or just, just something that um, is a passion for them that could be monetized at some point if they had the startup capital, if they had the, the connections to get the right, you know, uh, municipal, you know, certifications to get whatever business going that they want done. And then you start to see this sort of collapse of, you know, cottage industries, small companies. And then, you know, of course, you add on top of that COVID wiping out, you know, anybody that was still holding on. So now, like, you know, going into the future, I can see your frustration because the bottom really has been kicked out of that, uh, you know, that sort of um, majority class of people that, you know, in other generations and other iterations of this country would have been able in some way to, you know, create... Um, to do anything, yeah. I mean, to, any, yeah, you anything, could open. Yeah. A, you could open a. You, you could open a small cafe for six people in your freaking yard. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You could put a, it's in your backyard. You could put a cute little wooden sign out front, and you could make breakfast for a couple people on Saturday mornings. And then you could use that money if you got nothing else going on on a Saturday morning to save up, and you know. Open a open a uh, another thing, mm -hmm. like, yeah. a, like a bookshop, or right. or um, you know, I call them junk outfits, but like an antique shop, right? You know, right. Anything you could you could use it to you could use something like that to to get take some classes, get a degree if you can't get a degree. You know, exactly. I call it. Yeah. I call it entrepreneurship at the margin, right? Hmm. Because 
people don't go from they don't go from working a nine to five to you know um founding an international shipping company <laughs> right but 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 if you listen to you know and then you have this sort of false narrative being displayed you know to people um like you know the whole like gary vanderchuk like there's a business inside of everybody and it's like okay how did you start your business and it's like oh yeah my parents already owned a wine company that was you know that i could just take over and it's like yeah you know that's not really i don't know how much that can actually be translated to the the, the majority of, uh, of americans you know so there is this sort of so then you know when people listen to barry ganderchuk they buy his fucking motivational shit they start feeling bad about themselves they're like there's supposed to be a business inside of me but i can't get it started and it's like people are actually internalizing their own um victor or not their yeah. own the, the people predator people yeah internalize it at all because it it should be as e like if you want to just buy a bunch of coffee cups and make coffee and sell it out of your fucking garage as far as i'm concerned you should be allowed to do it and people right. go uh you know i get the next thing that moves into is libertarianism or something right i'm not libertarian. i'm not i don't believe that the government is evil and that the government shouldn't be involved in things i think you need government and you need law to some extent so in that way, I'm not a libertarian, but what I am is practical. I understand that the way the modern world was built wasn't because mommy and daddy owned a wine. <laughs> it right. was some guy went out there and he had an idea to open a restaurant, but he had no money. So what did he do? He saved up enough money to buy a car. He put a cab sticker on the side and he drove around giving people rides until mm -hmm. he saved enough money to open his restaurant or to do his thing. And that's what, that's what, you know, that's what the key problem is. I think when we talk mm. about is like income inequality, right? Right. Or disproportionate conditions or people being miserable at their jobs. And there's this push for a living wage. I don't understand the people. I don't understand the people who go, yeah, we want to give you a living wage. But they're, to me, what they're saying is we want to make you as comfortable as possible at this shitty job. Yeah, till, right. So you die. Yeah. You don't like, bother. That's what they're saying to me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. It's almost like there's no discussion about a living job. There's only discussions about a living wage. What can we bribe you? What's the amount that we can bribe you for your life energy? And it's like for a long time, it wasn't that much money. But now they're like, okay. People are getting a little bit restless. What more can we bribe them on to continue to suck away their life energy? But it's like it's still not addressing you're sucking away their life, or at least they feel that you're sucking away their life energy. There's, you know, the amount of people that will do things that they love for free tells you the story right there. So it's never been about money. I mean, it's about money to the degree in which you can support yourself. But the, the idea of like, okay, you know, you get a guy who you know, was a HR manager or, you know, head of HR at some, you know, blah, blah corporation. And, you know, he hates his job. He's, you know, probably on SSRIs, whatever is his vices, got a lot of things going on. And, uh, you know, instead of giving him $55,000 a year, you give him $80,000 a year. Okay. I mean, what does that actually, who, how is that addressing <laughs> what his actual problem is? In fact, at, sometimes adding money can add fuel to the fire for a lot of people. So, I don't know exactly what we're going to do with that, you know, because there are a lot of jobs that are required to be done that are not interesting. And most people, frankly, shouldn't be doing them like they should be automated or they should be whatever they are. But 
someone's got to do. Oh, hello, you got me. Yeah, are you copy?